So welcome to the Timothy Zahn Q&A panel. I'm assuming the man next to me doesn't need too much of an introduction since you are all here. However, I'm Kevin Smith. Hi. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please enjoy this panel for the next uh, hour as we speculate about um, Clerks. Clerks <laughs> 5, is that what he did? I don't know. OK, so we're just going to keep the this. The Clerks Awaken? Yes. The Clerks Awaken, um, the Clerks Strike Back. And no, the second one is the force hits the snooze alarm. <laughs> and the third one is the force is late to work. Or school? Or school, yes. Force still in school? Okay. So we're going to keep this super informal since I'm sure a lot of you guys don't necessarily want to hear the questions that I'm asking Tim. Um, and you would rather ask him your own questions. But we will just go ahead and get started with, so Tim, how, did you, get, how did you get into writing? I watched a bad TV show. Well, which TV show? It was uh, 1975. It was The Invisible Man with David McCallum. Um, I'd liked previous incarnations of Invisible Man. Uh, I like David McCallum, but you've got to give the guy something to work with. And they didn't. So I turned off the, uh, the episode at, at the end, and I said to myself, I could write a better story than that. So over the next two weeks, uh, I sat down, and in my spare time, I wrote a story. Is this coming through okay? It sounds kind of loud for me. Okay. Um, was not very good, but it showed me this was kind of fun. So I worked, uh, took that up as a hobby for the next, oh, I guess uh, 75, so about four years. Um, I was working on a doctorate in physics. My project wasn't working. My advisor was out of town a lot, so I had lots of time to to uh, to write and uh, December of 70, 78 uh, I sold my first story to Analog Magazine thought about well maybe when I get my doctorate I will take a year off and try writing full-time and see if I can make a go of that so in uh, July of 79 a few months later um, I sold my second story the morning I learned that my advisor had died overnight of a heart attack so one of those real roller coaster days. I uh, worked with a new professor for the next semester for, um, with uh, a new project. Since mine wasn't working, nobody was going to pick it up. And uh, discovered I couldn't write and work on a new project in physics at the same time. I just didn't have enough mental energy to do that. Uh, decided I was having more fun writing than I was you know, attempting to do physics. This is after they told me that Let's see, I'd been in the department in the grad school since 73, so about seven years, six, seven years. Uh, they told me another two years, eight to ten hours a day, six days a week, and we, you can probably get your doctorate. And I wasn't willing to, to put that much effort into it, so I uh, decided to try the writing. And uh, December, January of 1980, I started writing full-time. Uh, Anna and I had been married four months. Her parents were absolutely thrilled by this decision. <laughs> they did come around, but you could tell in there, he's going to do what? The physics department wasn't exactly thrilled either, but I suspect they, they, they were expecting someday I would be found lying face down in a gutter. And when they turned me over, tattooed on my forehead would be, failure from the University of Illinois Physics Department and list their names. 
they came around eventually as well. Uh, but that was, uh, that was how I got started. I set a goal of $1,000 for that first year, uh, ended up with $2,000. So, so far it seems to be working. You might have some moderate success as a writer. I, I'm thinking that maybe. You One know, day. Someday, yeah. I'm hoping someday. Okay, the second most important question. Yes. I bet you can guess what this one is. Probably. Uh, let's see, my favorite food? No. No. <laughs> How did you become a Star Wars fan? A Star Wars fan? A Star Wars fan. I went to the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't get there the first night because I was doing some physics work, physics stuff. Uh, I got there the second night. Um, okay, here comes the crawl. Okay, interesting. Here comes a ship. Here comes another ship. Keeps coming. Keeps coming. I had never had a sense of real size on a movie screen before. And by the time you got the engines of that Star Destroyer, I thought, okay, these guys know what they're doing. This is going to be a fun movie. So uh, I was hooked from that point. Saw that movie in the theaters. 17, 18 times. Uh, it was kind a, of liked it? It was a great date movie, too. Uh, and I knew a lot of women who wanted to be friends with me. Uh, and go to movies. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I was a Star Wars fan from way back. So when they offered me the, the Thrawn trilogy, uh, well, I panicked. But after that, <laughs> after that, I was delighted to take it. I mean, I guess it was not called the Thrawn Trilogy at that time. No, it was even not even called a trilogy because they insisted, if you look at the, the, the cover, it's a books one, two, and three of a story cycle. Bantam was not allowed to say trilogy on that, those covers. Bantam's theory was Lucas thought he'd invented the word and therefore... <laughs> but but they, were, they were one, two, and three of a story cycle. So, uh, no, it was not called the Thrawn Trilogy. It was not called anything in particular. It was not even expected or anticipated that there would be any more after it. This was, Bantam was pushing the whole thing. Lugo Ronica uh, pressed Lucasfilm to let Bantam do these books. And um, Lucasfilm go, when it, you know, said go ahead, but I don't think anybody expected there would be more Star Wars books after this. I think this was a grand experiment. And um, you know, they wanted to print uh, 100,000 copies for the first printing. They wound up with 70 because obviously the bookstore uh, buyers weren't all that thrilled or all that uh, anticipating that this would, would, would actually go anywhere. Uh, that first printing was gone in a couple of weeks. They were scrambling to get more printings out. Uh, at, at one point, the, uh, the, the stock uh, on the, uh, the, the, the uh, um, boards were blue for the uh, heir to the empire underneath the dust cover. Printing four has them in a tan because they ran out of blue stock. And they, they had to put those in brown and then went back to the blue. Uh, but no, nobody was nobody except Lou Aronica, who had started the whole thing, who who consistently said this is a license to print money. Uh, but no one else really had any confidence. And you know, the last Star Wars movie had been 1983. Nothing had happened since then. The fans were very quiet, to the point of, are there fans out there anymore? 
And as heir to the empire proved, the fans were quiet because they didn't have anything to glom onto at that point. Uh, I got stories from bookstore uh, uh, employees who would take a box up to the front of the store to, to put the books on the shelf. Someone would come by, look in the box, grab one, and head to the checkout. So uh, yeah, the, the, the fans were always there, and this, this proved it to the point where by the time uh, Heir to the Empire fell off the New York Times bestseller list, they had 12 more books contracted between Lucasfilm and Bantam. Uh, the torch eventually passed to Del Rey, which was interesting because Bantam and Del Rey had sort of had a bidding war and then they got bought by the same company. So yeah, it's like husband and wife bidding against each other, it's, but they didn't know it at the time. Um, and Del Rey is now, now the era has passed from legends to Legend. new era, <laughs> canon, etc. So, So since you came out with the Thrawn trilogy. We've, yeah. You've done, what, 10 books in this 10 series? books total, yeah. Okay. I'm glad I got them all. And there have been another four films. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm going to preempt a question that I'm sure someone out there has and ask if Del Rey comes to you tomorrow and says, hey, Tim, you want to write another book? You can't have Thrawn or Mara, okay. but do you want to write another book? What do you say? It would depend on what they wanted me to do. Um, Probably I would find you know, whatever they wanted, probably I would be interested. Uh, if they wanted me to do the heroic journey of Jar Jar Binks, I might turn them down. Wait, can you pitch that for us real quick? I really want to hear it. Oh, I could do it. I just probably wouldn't enjoy it as much. as. Uh, <laughs> um, it would depend if they wanted me to do uh, a spin-off of one of the characters in Force Awakens or a backstory to something or you know, a side adventure. Uh, until they talk to me about something, uh, there's not a lot of point in speculating, but probably, almost certainly I would take the, take the job because I've enjoyed working with Star Wars over the years. Uh, Lucasfilm, Bantam, and Del Rey have been very easy to work with, which is why I've got 10 Star Wars books and not three, because I would have quit after that first one <laughs> if they'd been a pain. Um, so yeah, uh, if they call tomorrow, which they won't, because it's Sunday. They call the day after tomorrow. <laughs> oh, the day after tomorrow. They know my phone number, they know my address, they know my email. If they want me, they can find me. Uh, and until they want me, I just sit back and I've got other work to do, uh, other projects. Um, do you want to tease those projects? Uh, well, I'm working. I've still got the Manticore Ascendant series I'm doing with David Weber. Uh, the third book is waiting for David to clear out the logjam in his schedule so he can uh, look it over, and then we'll, uh, it's supposedly coming out, I think, scheduled for next February. Um, I've got a new series called Sybil's War, S-I-B-Y-L, uh, starting in tour, at tour next July, I think, finally. Uh, they, they've sat on the first book for about three or four years now. Uh, the original editor left, and it's been an orphan. Uh, but they, that's a three-book series, which I'm, I'm hoping to do is five eventually. I've got the final Cobra, uh, Cobra Rebellion book to do, and um, two or three other projects that I would like to get to once I have free time, which is probably early 2018 at this point. And I have, uh, it's finished, um, uh, a StarCraft novel, for those of you who have played StarCraft. Uh, 
So that should, that hopefully will do well. What? The title is Starcraft colon Evolution. So. So just one or two things on your plate. Oh, uh, one or two, yeah. Okay. All right, now we're going to get to the part where I shut up, since I'm sure all <laughs> of you have questions. Um, As three you of you. see, there is already a line in the middle, um, so you guys can go ahead and line up there. I will just, you know, remind everyone, you know, heckling, because we do have two stormtroopers and Mara mm -hmm. Jade here. I think we're authorized to use deadly force if necessary. Absolutely. So. All right, sir, go ahead. Uh, uh, there may be a red button in the back. Try pressing that little tiny red button. Is the mic in the center working? How about that one? How about that one? Okay. Anna, can you grab that? Turn it on for her. Heard that. No, that was, oh, no, that was on. Just kidding. <laughs> had a very interesting, while we're organizing, it's very interesting uh, presentation by James uh, James Randy at uh, the University of Illinois. You know uh, Randy, the skeptic and such. He, uh, the uh, uh, guy came up to the podium, introduced him. He came out and started talking. And he started talking that as a magician, as a skeptic, the first thing you, you need to understand is people have make assumptions that they often don't know they are making. He said, for example, and he walked away from the podium and said, you thought that mic was live. It wasn't, he had a throat mic on. It's a simple assumption, but we all made it, and a magician or you know, con man knows how to use those. So we can pretend that one is live and use the other one. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, kind of a quick two-part question, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, I got the impression, you could tell me if I'm correct or incorrect on this, that, the, that while Thrawn obviously had a great deal of respect for someone like Boss Park and Peleon, and given the roles that he gave them, mm -hmm. it didn't seem like there were really any other Imperial commanders or leaders that he actually had a great respect for. I mean, I kind of am skeptical whether he even thought the Emperor and Vader were particularly good leaders. Um, so one question would be, what's your take on that? Mm -hmm. that were there any Second part of the question, in one of your novels, obviously continuing this, the, the hand of Thrawn. Do you want to answer the first one first? You had the That's clone of Thrawn that was sitting If you had ever developed that character as an actual character who got to interact with people, the clone of Thrawn, in your view, how close would he have been to actually being as capable as the original Thrawn versus you're saying, oh, it's a clone. Mm -hmm. He won't necessarily automatically be as yeah. good as Thrawn as Thrawn. The first, yeah, the first, first question, um, we don't see him interacting with all that many Imperials. He does, in the Thrawn trilogy, send various captains out to do various jobs, so he must at least recognize or assume they've got the ability to carry those out. Um, what his feelings about the Emperor Vader are, he treats them out, outwardly with respect. What he actually thinks... Um, it's hard to say. I mean, his goal is, his, his belief is that the empire is the only political entity that can stand against the forces outside of the, of the empire, outside that region of space. And that is why he works so hard to hold, hold that together. 
uh, and having seen the chaos of the Clone Wars, you can see his point of view. Yes, all of these different points of view, you know, aliens, humans, etc., all with their own political agendas, all of their styles, can easily bring chaos, and chaos will not stand against against evil. So you may not agree with his point of view, but you can certainly see he's got an argument on that. Uh, second part, as, the, as to the clone, that was one of the stories I would like to have done if Legends, or if, if you know, they hadn't stopped doing Legends books, would be a clone of Thrawn who is thrust into a leadership role and has no idea if he can live up to what everybody is expecting and needing him to do. So yeah, that would have been an interesting, sort of like if you had an older brother who went through school ahead of you and who was just marvelous and all the teachers said, oh yes, you're in my class too. I knew your brother. I'm great expecting great things from you. We all hated that. Um, fortunately, my older sister wasn't nearly as great shakes to, to ruin the, the, the field for me. Uh, but it would be that kind of thing and it could have been a, a, an interesting psychological social thing as well as military and Star Wars, but uh, again, probably never have a chance to do that. If the clone's name had been Thrawn. Thrawn? <laughs> Double A. Thrawn, yeah. Oh, Thrawn, it, it's sorry. Just, it's just a little bit of a, people ask why I did that. Uh, the, the, the little stutter, the vowel stutter, Thrawn, Joros, Stabioth. The reason is I knew from the start I was going to have a battle between Luke and the clone at the end. In a movie, you can put them in different outfits and have no problem telling which is which. In a book, you can't do that, so I needed to make a visual distinction between the two of them. Because having a fight, Luke does this, Luke clone does this, gets very awkward. Much simpler and faster, Luke, Luke does this, Luke blocks and you know, throws a new, uh, another slash or something like that. So it was for the visual that I knew I was going to need down the line. But uh, you know, having, having the extra vowel and having to uh, do the little stutters, not unreasonable, right? Yeah. Go ahead. where you can tell a range of stories, stories aimed at little children and stories aimed at adults with a range of questions and moral questions that you're examining in them. And my question for you is, how do you interpret the signal for getting out of Disney Star Wars now that they ordered the reshoots of Rogue One? I personally got chills when I saw the trailer for it. I thought this is going to be a war movie. We're going to examine really needy ideas about self-sacrifice, zealotry, and breathlessness. And I was, I was all set. And now I'm wondering if, I mean, they said they want the movie to hit the four quadrants. So I'm wondering what that means about the final product and whether they will, Disney will allow some movies in the universe to be darker, just as Marvel has allowed some, some shows like Jessica Jones and Daredevil on Netflix to be much darker than, say, the, the tentpole movies. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about Rogue One. I've heard the rumors there are reshoots. I don't know if that really means anything. Um, Sadly, I have seen any number of trailers that looked really good in the movie, you know, stunk like four, four week old fish. Uh, so I, 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 can't, I, I can't judge anymore a movie by the trailer. I agree that the Rogue One trailer looks very good. And I'm hoping they will, will pull out a really good movie. Um, one of the things, 
Well, first of all, it's for darkness, uh, you know, the darkest of the classic is Empire Strikes Back, Empire Strikes Back, which most people consider, you know, the best of the of the seven. Uh, so I don't think having a little darkness is necessarily a problem. The other thing that, that groups like uh, Pixar in particular are very good at is layering things. So there's stuff for the adults and stuff for the children. Uh, really good writing, you can do that. You can have the action adventure for the kids, but you can layer in the political or relational stuff um, for, for the, the adults in the audience. Uh, I remember my mother telling me when uh, the family had gone to see Mary Poppins, and I was, yeah, about it. She pointed out I was at the wrong age. I was too old for just the magic and the fantasy and the cool stuff. I was too young to appreciate Mary Poppins putting this family back together. Uh, but you, I go back and look at it now, and yeah, I see the layers in that now. And again, a lot of Pixar does that. A lot of you know, the, the, the best movies have that layering. Uh, there's no reason Rogue One can't do something along that same line. So. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it, and no, I have no idea if that's a Grand Admiral. <laughs> I will point out that uh, uh, Imperial Security Bureau also has white tunics, so for whatever that's worth. Of course, it doesn't mean it's not. It is important to remember, they're just rumors. Yeah. I mean, a lot, if all the rumors were true, Mara was in The Force Awakens, and who else was? She was just off camera the whole time. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, just a little actually, left. Of that segues into my question pretty well. Um, yeah. I teed you up for that. I, I uh, so appreciate your work and how you capture the voices of the original characters so well in the original trilogy. Um, the question is, uh, have there, I may not be as big a fan perhaps as other people in the room. Um, I've read five of your, your books, mm -hmm. but then not all of them, and then I haven't yet watched fully Clone Wars and Rebels. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious if there are uh, ideas or characters from your novels that have been integrated at all into the show or into the canon, and then do you anticipate at all your characters or ideas yep. showing up in some of the new films that are, that are being done? Stuff that has been done in Clone Wars, an early episode, uh, someone uses a Marg Sobel maneuver, which was in like page three of Heir to the Empire, something Thrawn you. So the name of that maneuver got mentioned in Clone Wars. Other things, uh, the name Coruscant for the Imperial Planet was my, my origination. Uh, and the, the idea of catching force lightning on a lightsaber blade uh, was also mine. So there, there are three things that have made it into canonical uh, material. What they plan to do for the future is anybody's guess. Uh, they typically do not tell the writers what's going on or the authors, um, the, the old saying is that authors like mushrooms, they keep us in the dark and feed us manure. Um, <laughs> that's the polite way of turning that one. Um, so typically, I've never, never been told w uh, when uh, Mara or Thrawn was in a video game. I didn't even know that Chiss had been brought into uh, the, I never remember that name. The, 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 the Old Republic, I think. The Old Republic, the, the yeah. game, the, the online game. Uh, until someone just happened to mention it to me. Um, I will mention this is not necessarily just the writers. Uh, apparently, uh, Vector Prime was within a couple of weeks of being published when somebody said, you know, 
this book kills off Chewbacca's, Chewbacca, maybe you should tell Peter Mayhew that he's about to lose his character. <laughs> Spoilers for anyone who hasn't read that yet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's not just us. It's the movie people tend to ignore everybody outside the movie people business. Uh, so what they're, if, if they do something, um, it's going to probably come as a surprise to all as, as much as it is to you. But I'd love to see something more in there. Well, I'm going to make you speculate then, because I'm sure other people in the room have seen that tweet from Dave Filoni last week, where he tweeted a picture of a, of a book spine that said, and then said the tweet was something like, uh, remember there is some truth in legends, which if anyone's on the Star Wars Twitter, <laughs> Thrawn. Uh, I, I, had not, I had not seen that. I saw the, heard the rumor that was going around for a while that seemed to die on the vine, but I had not seen that Twitter or heard uh, Dave Filoni talking that way. Oh, it was a thing. Well, he I, didn't say Thrawn, but it was a thing. I will have to see what that cover that the spine looks like. You... So, someone out there pulled it up on Twitter. <laughs> I don't but, get Twitter or don't do Twitter. So. How would you feel if it ended up being Thrawn or Mara or, I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of the other characters yeah. they could bring in in Rebels. How do I put this? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I, I would love to see something of mine show up in Rebels or you know, Rogue One or you know, any future movie. Uh, I think my stuff would translate well and would, would come in, and even just a passing, uh, passing reference, uh, you know, something like, well, when Before Force Awakens uh, came out, I was speculating you could have a, some kind of grand battle at the end of the trilogy, and all it would take was somebody saying, okay, we beat Palpatine, we beat Thrawn, we can beat this guy. And just a little reference like that. The thing you've got to be careful of whenever you do something like this is it's a ni nice little Easter egg for the readers, but most of the people watching the movie have not read the book. So you don't want to give them the impression, I'm missing something. Because then it, it doesn't feel, I mean, it's the same problem as if what does this plot point mean? Well, if you read the novelization, you understand. Well, I shouldn't have to read the novelization. It should be all in the movie or enough of it for me to get. So you could have passing references to characters, and as long as you don't make a big deal out of it, the non-readers will not notice that they're missing something, but the fan, the readers, will, will note the, the, uh, the edition and such. So, I mean, that's the proper way to do things, and we'll see you know, how they pull this, this off. Oh, wait, hold, sorry, hold on. Hold on, we have the tweet. <laughs> someone it compared says Star Wars. <laughs> I know, but someone oh. out there compared it, and apparently it's the exact gold foil that was on the original Heir to the Empire. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Some of you have way too much time in your life. <laughs> It wasn't me. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That is interesting. So, I'm sorry. No. Continue. Fine. Now I'm going to have to go back and look at my copy of the book and see. <laughs> go ahead. I was curious about uh, how do you feel about the canon wipe? And, you know, would you go back? Well, obviously, you go back to Star Wars and send it already. But how do you feel about the canon wipe as you know, your work is now considered legend? Okay. The, the, the long, you've got time for the long answer. Long answer. <laughs> I see three things they could have done when they decided to do new movies. One, they could have said, the expanded universe is gone. 
never existed. It's all somebody's bad dream. Bobby Ewing wakes up in the shower in <laughs> Dallas, etc. But to do that, they would now make it very hard for them to legitimately continue to sell the books because it doesn't exist. Why should we sell them? And at this point, it's all free money to them, so they would be stupid to do that. The second thing they could have done would be to go through the whole expanded universe and say, okay, this is canon, this is canon, these four aren't canon, this is canon. But to do that, they, need, they would need to know exactly what they wanted to do with Star Wars for the next 30 years. Not happening. They're lucky if they're six months ahead of what they're, what they're planning at this point. So what they've done is the equivalent of saying, okay, there was a massive flood in the Coruscant record office basement. <laughs> All these records got soggy. We can't read them. We, we, we hear there was somebody named Thrawn. There was somebody named Helen Card or Corrin Horn. But we can't confirm that. Uh, I, I think of it kind of like the legend of Robin Hood. Okay, we've got people tell stories even now about Robin Hood and, and you know, uh, King Arthur Knights of the Round Table. Uh, they're probably not based on anybody real, but they're still fun to read. However, if somebody were to see in a movie, however, if tomorrow, not tomorrow, it's Sunday, Monday, somebody finds a letter under Stonehenge or you know, in the Stonehenge region from Prince John to the Sheriff of Nottingham saying, okay, I have had it with this Robin Hood guy. I want his head on a pike now. Suddenly Robin Hood is no longer a legend. He's part of history. And that is what they have done by calling all this stuff legends. They're saying we can make any of these things back into canon at any time. We, oh, we found another, another uh, undamaged record in the records building. Okay, Talon Card does exist. Okay, he's now real again. So they have the option while still selling the books and, and you know, these are exciting stories about familiar characters, they have the option of pulling stuff back with a minimum of embarrassment and hand-waving and all of that. So I think we've got the best of the options has been set up. Also bear in mind that this, this, all of this stuff is not being overseen by a bunch of you know, black-suited uh, bean counters at some place. These are being, this is being overseen by the story group, which includes people like Pablo Hidalgo, Leland Shi, who have an extreme love for the expanded universe. And, and Dave Filoni has also mentioned he loves the EU. Yes. These are people who are not going to simply go demolish stuff, clear-cut the, the expanded universe. If they have to destroy a part of it, overwrite it, it will be because it's necessary to set up something else down the line. They're not going to go with wanton destruction. Uh, I noticed that in the setup for The Force Awakens, they really gloss over what happened for the, the 20 to 30 years in there. They're not committing themselves to, well, we are going to confirm the Thrawn trilogy or we're we going to say it never happened. They're just kind of, we're ignoring that part of history for the moment because we can tell this story which again leaves them options to do whatever they want to further down the line as they, as they make choices. So, um, you know, it's, it's, in a way it's kind of sad that it's all legends and not real, but it was never really real in the first place. We always knew Lucas could override anything that, that we've done. Um, 
But I think the expanded universe and Star Wars are in good hands at this point. So you know, take a deep breath, relax, and, uh, and enjoy what you've got. And bear in mind, J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy will not come to your house and take your books. <laughs> good chance they don't even know where you live, though with Disney, that's always iffy. They just know where you live. <laughs> yes. Well, they know where I live, but... Go ahead. Uh, so you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you couldn't use Thrawn. So I'm guessing Disney owns uh, that character now? Disney owns everything written under Star Wars banner. Okay. Yeah, that, that's typically how any franchise works, that the, the franchise owner, Star Trek, Star Wars, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they own everything that is written subsidiary. to That's just how the contracts go, and that's the way it should be. They're the ones who, who built the franchise. So yeah, if they if they came to me and said you can do a book, they could or whatever they could say with this character or without this character or anything else. On the same side, they they could take Mara or Thrawn or Card or Dent and put them in a movie or TV show or video game without telling me, consulting me, or sadly paying me because they own it all. So that is, that is the, the, the reason. They, nobody has to get permission from me or anybody else, which is why they can, when I see force lightning being caught in lightsaber blade, that's the first I knew they were going to do that. Oh, cool. Because uh, there's no need to contact me. Uh, they own everything. So yeah, they, they own everything there. Um, I sometimes define myself as a wholly owned subsidiary of Lucasfilm, but not really true. Well, Partially owned. So that that was just confirmation, but yeah. uh, leading into that, how much of whenever they approach you to write the, the three novels, the, the cycle, um, <laughs> was uh, was there? Was it just like the bare bones? And then how much did you create? Because there's things like outbound flight that, mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, became a mystery just because yeah. it was almost a throwaway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it was a throwaway line. Oh, it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Lucasfilm came to me with two, they, they had two uh, guidelines. I was to start the book set three to five years after Return of the Jedi, and I could use anybody who had not been killed in the movies. That was it. Uh, basically, it is you, it, it pretty much always has come down with Lucasfilm to tell us the story you want to tell, what, what story you want to tell, and we'll tweak it or tell you if you've got to come up with something new or whatever. Uh, the only exception has been with uh, Survivor's Quest. They had an idea for a character who would be going through the novels, the video games, and the comic books, just kind of a, you know, linking everything together, and they wanted me to put him in. You know, gave me the description, okay, I, I see it. there's a spot for a second-tier character that he'll fit in uh, with just fine, so that was not a problem. But they've never given me plot points, they've never given me characters I have to use except for him. Uh, they've been very good about, you know, tell us what story you want to tell. Now, after I do that, of course, and after I do a final outline and novel, they will say, come back and, okay, this, we, you can't do this, this, you can't do this, or can you tweak this, or 
or persuade us that this works. Um, but that, that is typical. But no, they've never given me a list of things, put this in a book, and if they did, I probably wouldn't do the book because, uh, you know, I, I've got X number of books I will write in my lifetime. I don't really want to spend one of them telling somebody else's story. I've turned down a couple of projects where you, you'll write from this outline. Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm not really interested. Do you want to see the other? Yeah. So that's the one Filoni tweeted. <laughs> We're coming back to the tweets. Yeah. That's when he tweeted. That's apparently heir to the Empire. So apparently the other ones on the trilogy don't have the same gold. These are people who have too much time. <laughs> <laughs> people have too much time on their hands, yeah. Actually, that looks more like Last Command's gold. They said it's not. They said well, neither. Oh, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry, sorry. None of them have the, uh, the little R symbol. I'm sorry. The little... Yeah, the little trademark thing. None of the, uh, none of the other two on the trilogy no, wait, have them. All right, where is his? Right there. That's weird because Star Wars almost always has a registered trademark thing. The Lucasfilm lawyers are very good about that. <laughs> the mystery deepens. Okay, next question. Thank you. That's, be that's because they didn't tell us what was going to happen in the movies. Yeah, that, that was, I think that was a lot of people's assumptions that the clones were the bad guys in it, and, and uh, Lucas turned that one right on his head very nicely. Um, I tried to be very vague about that, and I could probably hand, my, hand wave my way around it. Uh, part of the problem is there's a 15-year discrepancy in my books because in the original timeline they gave me, Luke and Leia were born 15 years after the end of the Clone Wars. And then Lucas changed that and suddenly we've got this book in production that's off and there's nothing we can do about it. So we've got to try to avoid even talking about that in Plate Company. Um, but yeah, I think most of us assumed the clones were the bad guys and uh, Again, I tried to be vague. Uh, hopefully, I just left you with the impression rather than actually saying it because it's easier to hand wave expression or impressions than uh, facts. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, because nobody told us how that was going to work. Lucas was very secretive about that. Uh, so what tips, specifically with um, developing your writing skills, mm -hmm. what tips would you give any young or aspiring authors to uh, help better, especially your way of um, giving like describing the scenes, setting the scenes, uh, developing characters, writing dialogue, uh, the, not just having ideas or ideas about characters, yeah. but actually putting it down on paper and writing mm -hmm. it in a way that's uh, publishable. Uh, the secret of writing, you write. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You read a lot, see what you like in other people's styles, you know, adopt it, they see what you don't like, you know, learn to avoid it, practice writing characters, practice writing dialogue, uh, your descriptions. It's one of those things you can learn by doing. You don't have to have formal instruction or anything else. You can, you can develop it on your own. 
but the key is just to keep writing, keep to working on it, keep developing it. Uh, Anna will tell you that the my early books and stories, I would complain to her, oh, I've got a section of dialogue. I'm terrible at dialogue. It takes a long time. Dialogue's the fastest thing for me to write now because I understand how to do it. Okay, these points have to be brought out. and It, it flows very easily. In fact, I, I will say, okay, I've got the next uh, 3,000 words plotted in my brain, and the first 1,000 are going to be about pretty much dialogue. I'll get that done by lunch. Um, so it's just something you develop as you as you work. You, you learn how to do it. You learn what works with your style. But the key is you don't think about doing it any more than you think about playing tennis. You get on the on the tennis court and play. Well, you get you sit down at your computer or your you know pad of paper and you write. So that's the thing. Just keep at it. Keep writing. Eventually, send stories in. If they get rejected, you know, write something else. Uh, and you just don't stop. There are, there are wonderful novels out there nobody will ever read because it was going to be the third novel somebody was going to write and they got discouraged on book one and never got to book three. So you want to write, you just have to sit down, make yourself write. And if you don't have time, people have said, you know, I, I, I would like to write, but I just don't have any time. My usual answer is, do you have a lunch break? How long is it? Half an hour? Eat lunch for 15 minutes and write for 15 minutes. If that's all you can do, do it, but do it habitually. Make it you know, a pattern, fall into the habit of doing it. And once you've got those 15 minutes and you can do that, then you start adding it, make it 20 minutes the next time, half an hour, you know, an hour before bedtime or an hour, get up an hour early and, and do it before you go to work or whatever. But the key is you make yourself write. You can step forward a little bit. Are you hearing the, the questions back there? Okay, I can't tell. People not hearing? Who's not hearing it properly? Yeah. Okay, everybody in back. Do you want me to start, start summarizing to, questions? Is it coming through any better? You guys can still hear us, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I can summarize your question. The question was, what are the differences between writing original and writing uh, somebody else's universe? Uh, writing Star Wars or StarCraft is in many ways like a soccer soccer game where you've got boundaries, you've got number of people on the field, you've got rules, etc. Writing my own stuff is more akin to Calvin Ball, <laughs> where I get to kind of make it up. Now, unlike Calvin and Hobbes, I can, once I get something set up, I've got to be consistent with it. But the, the, the sky is the limit on ideas. I mean, you've got, uh, with, with Star Wars, you've got hyperdrive, you've got lightsabers, you've got, you know, various things like that. With, uh, say, my Quadrail series, okay, we've got tunnels, tubes between stars uh, in, in uh, the, the way to get between uh, the stars and inside the tubes are trains running at a light year per minute. Okay, what society develops this way? What kind of uh, uh, the culture, what kind of the, the technology, all that sort of thing. You start with a weird premise and just build out from there. So. Um, Neither is easier or harder, it's just different. Uh, I enjoy the, the ability to talk about the Millennium Falcon without having to describe it, or you know, Han Solo does this without having to give any backstory or description. 
Uh, got an extra shorthand that way. Uh, but I enjoy building uh, new technologies that would never work in Star Wars and new characters as well. So uh, they're both fun. Uh, I like I like doing both of them. It's a different challenge uh, between the two two ways of doing it. Um, what did I think when the when the prequels came out? You mean about the prequels per se, or just the fact there were prequels? Um, as as I said, I think a lot of uh, has that gone off again. Um, I think a lot of the Thrawn trilogy, that from Lucasfilm's point of view, was toe in the water. Let's see if anybody is still interested. Okay, we'll just use volume. Um, whether anybody's interested in Star Wars and if it's worth Lucas making more movies from it. Uh, as to the actual content of the prequels, I see George Lucas is very much akin to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Big picture, big universe, expanded, you know, expansion, not the best storytellers. Uh, I mean, I mean, he, he, Lucas is a grand vision person. He does very well at that, but his his dialogue is not the best. And you see that again, as I say, with Tolkien, uh, there are too many really dramatic places which he tells in flashbacks, so you lose, you lose attention. A lot of the major serious decisions in Lord of the Rings are happen off camera. You know, Aragorn deciding to go for the kingship. Uh, um, Gladriel, uh, Arwen deciding to give up her immortality. These are all happen off camera in Tolkien. And you know, if, if, if you know, he, he comes to a spot where he's written himself into corner, like Weathertop, Frodo's being attacked by Black Riders. Here comes Aragorn. Frodo faints because probably Tolkien couldn't figure out how Aragorn beats them. So Frodo faints and we come back and they're gone. Uh, I mean, again, he's a visionary. He's not a great storyteller. And you know, you accept that because his world is so rich and so, so interesting. But I think Peter Jackson fixed a lot of that stuff in Lord of the Rings. And we will not go into The Hobbit here, thank you. <laughs> a three movie prequel to a classic, how could that go wrong? <clears throat> we'll wait for Lucasfilm to come. Bursting down the door. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, just they, kidding. I'm kidding. I think the implant's uh, battery's gone dead, so it won't <laughs> blow my head off. Um, no, I, I think there was a... The prequels, I think, needed another pass of the word processor. Uh, I think very much the same with The Force Awakens. Um, but it's, you know, not my franchise unless you guys want to start a Kickstarter with four and a half billion to buy it back. I don't think we're... Uh, no, that hasn't worked. <laughs> you tried? <laughs> no, I've seen the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, no, I, it's... We have different approaches. I, I write novels where I've got a lot more room and a lot more time to develop characters. I get inside characters' heads. None of that's available to a movie maker. Uh, they've got very much li more limited time, and everything has to be in action and dialogue. Uh, so it's it's a different genre, and you know we have different approaches to things. So uh, the prequels, I think, had a lot of interesting stuff to them, 
but I think they needed a little more tweaking, and um, George didn't tweak it enough. But again, some cool stuff. Okay. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, good. So, uh, two questions. First mm -hmm. of all, John, uh, John's last words are, it was artistically done. Mm -hmm. Is that a reference to the Roman Emperor Nero, whose last words were, oh, with an artist I die? And John fights the exam bomb who wins? <laughs> Nero said that? <laughs> no, actually, I, I don't think I was aware of that quote, so. Good heavens, I've, I've committed literature. <laughs> Mike Stackpole talks about sometimes we, we're discussing, you know, doing actual themes and such, you know, the deeper underlying stuff in, in, in books and comments. You know, we're, we're almost committing literature here. Uh, no, I actually had not heard that's not a reference to Nero. Um, you can say it is. No one outside this room will tell. <laughs> yeah, you just lie. Yeah, no, no. I don't think Nero is a really good role model, frankly. Uh, if they had, if I had been interested in doing a New Jedi Order book, what I would have done, or what I would have, would have pitched, would have been what the Chiss were doing against the Vong while they were attacking the New Republic. And my, my assumption is they were pinning down a lot of Vong out there. Uh, Thrawn against the Vong, he would have won. Um, Give, if he was given, an, again, sufficient stuff. One of my theories, which I've never been allowed to say in a book, is that the Death Stars were designed against the Vong. That the way I've got it crafted in outbound flight, Sidious learns from Thrawn about a threat out there, and the Death Stars were actually designed to meet that threat. But as long as the threat isn't here and we've got these dumb rebels, let's deal with them with it first. Uh, but you can see from the way the Vong were set up that the Death Stars would have been very effective against them. So, but again, it it's, makes a nice coherent theory, but they, they never let me say that officially, and now of course it's just a legend, so it doesn't count. Darren, didn't Aaron Alston rib on that with the nostril? I wanted to say that Aaron Alston sort of made a joke about that in one of his New Jedi Order books, said they would have built the nostril Palpatine some other superhero, <laughs> super weapon to go against him? That sounds like Aaron, that sounds like Aaron yeah. Uh, and I think we've got about three minutes, so we've got maybe... We've got five. We've got five, okay. Yeah, I just got... I'm, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, just because I have a betting pool of work with some coworkers, I would like to hear your vote on this. Who do you think Ray is related to? <laughs> First thing, what is my cut if I win? <laughs> The obvious choice, since these were all originally billed as the Skywalker family, would be that she's related to Luke. However, there are compelling arguments she's related to Obi-Wan, and it would be really nice if she wasn't related to anybody, just because um, the universe gets smaller with every movie. It's like Charles Dickens, you know, people keep running into each other all across England. Well, apparently England was smaller back in those days. <laughs> Um, I'm guessing she's going to be related to, to Luke. Um, Who's the mother? <laughs> well, you, you know my vote on that. Um, but I would not dare to jinx it by saying anything. 
What? It's, it's for mica. It's. <laughs> <laughs> it's close enough. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, there, there are a lot of plot threads that aren't haven't been really properly explained or dealt with in The Force Awakens. We're hoping they will clear them up in the next two movies. Um, you, you, Abrams is not, in my opinion, very good at internal consistency and internal logic. Uh, you get a lot of that in Force Awakens. Hmm? You, they're agreeing with you. They're agreeing. Yeah, okay. Uh, but Abrams is not directing the next one, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't know who's writing it. Um, Ryan Johnson. Yeah, I don't know much about him though, or what kind of. Uh, he wrote the best episode of Breaking Bad, or directed the best episode of Breaking Bad. Okay. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how he will do with Star Wars, though. And I mean, nobody does until you until you try it. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, I'm guessing she's related to Luke, but. Um, I'm still hoping it'll be explained why Luke, after a failure, just went and hid instead of fixing it. But I like the movie Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, fix it. You made a mess. Anyway, go ahead. Hi, uh, quick question. Um, what's a source of inspiration when you're writing or you're brainstorming that I guess people around here would find unexpected seeing your uh, background? And it could just be an author or it could be literary source or it could just be a genre. At this point, it's deadlines. Uh, just a second. Honest, Corwin. It's my son calling. He's uh, spending the day at Disney World. Yeah, I was supposed to. I was supposed to check in with uh, a couple of the other uh, the actors about their prices, and I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. So that's probably what he's nagging about. Uh, yeah, we, we once had, uh, he called, and when I had the room full of his the people he knew say, hi, Corwin. He's never yet forgiven me, so I probably shouldn't have done that. Probably not. Either. Yeah. Source of inspiration. Um, source of inspiration. Unexpected. Um, there's no source of inspiration per se. It's a, I sit down, I you know come up with the ideas, I work. And a lot, there's a lot of uh, you know, cool stuff that happens subconsciously. Uh, when I'm writing these days, I will I will put a little throwaway line in or some little something in chapter two, and then in chapter four, oh, that's what that was for. That's what that refers to. I know how to make this as a hook. So the inspiration is not so much visible. It's more like you know, a, it's more like a duck. The paddling is happening under the surface. So I don't. Oh, this is you know the, the excitement hits me as much as you know. Hopefully, it'll hit the readers. Um, just things come out of the blue nowadays, and then it's just a matter of sitting down and writing a thousand to two thousand words a day. This one? Okay. Real quick question, then they're throwing okay. us out. Okay. To the best of your knowledge, is there any, well, real life precedent of Ron's tactic of studying a culture's artwork in order to gain insight into its psychology? As far as I know, unless Nero did it. Um, <laughs> I have never run across that. However, I can't say for sure that, that there's no precedent. Everything an author sees, reads, whatever, goes into this little grab bag in the back of the brain, and then pieces come out, and sometimes without us realizing where the piece came from. Uh, I've never run into anything, and nobody's ever referenced anything to me, so I think that's probably unique. So, 
Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We still have four minutes, so I'm getting one last uh, question in. We got four minutes yet? Okay. Okay. Yes. So we heard for anyone who's at DragonCon, we got your pitch for how you would have written episode seven to start. Yes. So now I want to make you pitch your your two minute pitch for how you start episode eight. How I start episode eight? How do you start episode eight? And no, you cannot say Luke and Ray looking at each other on the rock. <laughs> Darn, that was my answer. I don't know. There's just so much stuff that we had the super weapon that apparently fires twice and is no good because it drained the sun on the second try. So I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't know who got away from there because they never showed us. Hux and Phasma and Ray are, or not Ray, Ren. Oops, they're all safe. But how do we know that they didn't show us? At least with New Hope, they showed Vader getting away and everybody else was toast. Because StarWars.com said so. Yeah, I know. That, <laughs> once again, you got to show people in the movie, not the subsidiary stuff. Um, I think Kylo Ren is not a very good villain. Snoke, Snoke, Snake. Snoke. Snoke. I can't get that name right. <laughs> Gollum. Um, <laughs> not inaccurate. They're... they're I just don't see any sense of presence or, I mean, when Vader walked onto Leia's ship, you had a sense of presence, you had a sense of power, even though he didn't really do much in that movie, you still had a sense of something here. I, the first time Kylo Ren had a tantrum, my first thought was, he's got visible buttons anybody can push. Thrawn would have this guy for lunch. <laughs> I mean, he loses practically. He loses practically every fight he's in. Uh, Hux. I mean, he seems to be give good speeches, but he certainly doesn't have a good security system on his the Death Planet. He's trying. Uh, what's her name? Captain Phasma. I'm sure is somebody's girlfriend. She's not very effectual at her job. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, think, of, think about it. Well, think about it. What does she do? She shuts down the shields with no fuss. She allows somebody who seems to be losing his uh, conditioning to wander around with his weapon. No, you don't tell him to report to sickbay. Hey, use two stormtroopers. Disarm him and take him down to sickbay. Um, you don't let a prisoner walk around with just one guard. Uh, it just there, there are a lot of things that even I, who am not a military professional or police professional, can see is not the way the military or police would do things. Um, and I just, I, I just don't see a sense of real menace in the bad guys in, in this, this movie. Hopefully, that will get better. They're learning. Hmm? They're learning. They're learning. I think we are out of time. Yeah. So everyone, thank you for coming to Tim's Thank you. Panel. All.